everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. The big wins for us last year was badges, the names, and the profiles per se. We didn't think that people would want to add profiles and talk about themselves, but you'd be surprised they do. This is where I think the convergence of a little bit of the community and gamification and shopping is all occurring and everyone's discovering their own comfort level in terms of that convergence. Auctions are dead. At least that's what the press seems to think about auction platforms. But Top Hatter is experiencing something different. The platform that started as an auction platform for homemade goods is now expanding to include a variety of products and is looking more like a third-party marketplace. Shree Menon is the COO of Top Hatter, a discovery and auction platform that is gamifying the e-commerce experience. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Shree explains the way Top Hatter has differentiated itself through gamification, fast real-time auctions, and a customer engagement experience that users have embraced. She also provides insights about the fundamentals of setting up an online marketplace, or any startup for that matter, that any CEO or founder would want to know. Plus, she discusses the importance of unit economics and A-B testing. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles from mission.org. And today we're joined by the COO at Top Hatter, Shree Menon. Shree, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be yeah. on the show. We are very excited to have you here. So I was looking at your background a bit, and it's very interesting. I would love it if we could start there, maybe telling us how you got into your uh, role you are in now and yeah, how you got there. Yeah, um, it, it's a very long, long career. Um, I started in, in the online world, which is, I think, more relevant in this podcast. Um, at Dell, I was the I used to lead the commercial online sales for Americas, Latin America and the uh, and North America. Uh, I was there for several years, uh, perhaps nine years overall at Dell, six years in online. And then I moved to eBay, was the general manager for the Motors Group. It, it was an amazing journey, but I did know that I wanted to go and work at a smaller startup using the skills that I have. And that's what brought me to Top Hatter. We had a discovery-based uh, shopping marketplace. Um, and it's been an amazing journey, and I'm happy to talk more about that in this podcast. Cool. Yeah, I'm sure the shift from Dell and eBay was uh, pretty immense from going to a smaller company. What was that like, and what kind of um, learnings did you take with you from Dell and eBay? It's it's a great question. So uh, the, the things that you take 
for granted at a uh, at a big company are um, generally that look you're not worried about the fact that you may you you may uh, the startup may fail there there isn't that mm -hmm. there's a tremendous sense of security because you're working in a big company there's of course a lot more pressure in terms of being able to communicate a lot about what you're doing working with many many different teams cross functionally um, and also the time to uh, market or the time to execute an idea mm, is very long. It takes a lo mm -hmm. lot of cycles. So that, that <laughs> so when you go to a startup, it's absolutely the other way around. We I hardly have any scheduled meetings, you know, every week kind of thing. It's it's mostly just you need to solve a problem, and so you're meeting to kind of solve it or um, brainstorming on something. Um, so it's it's the the pace of innovation, the pace of executing is so much faster when you're in a big when you're in a small company but of course it comes along uh, uh, that that kind of freedom also comes with a lot of responsibility with a lot of pressure to make numbers to be able to understand the intricacies of the entire business end to and not just your function um and it's thrilling and exciting yep yeah that, that's awesome so for top hatter it kind of reminded me a little bit of ebay but i would like to know how is it different because eBay's auction business seems like it's kind of declining, but Top Hatter seems like it's thriving. So how do how would someone think about what Top Hatter is and how would it how is it different? That's right. And you know, so eBay's auction, the way the way I think about it is yes, as compared to the overall business in terms of just eBay or how e-commerce has evolved as an industry, auction is probably a smaller portion. And uh, uh, the way eBay was designed originally, let's go back to the historical context, it was largely a C2C business, right? And mm -hmm. auctions work well in a C2C background or in any background or in any context where there isn't a fixed price or value of an item. It is what the buyer is willing to give you. So I could, for instance, I have a Louis Vuitton, which is you know five years old, I price it a lot in my mind. I think it's very precious to me, but but that value may not be the same. Uh, it may not be perceived the same by a buyer. That's where an auction really fits in really well. Now that's that's one use case. So from that perspective, I think eBay is still doing well in terms of that format when it comes to C to C, when it comes to very high worth items, high value items like cars and stuff like that, used cars again things that don't have an MSRP. Now, in our context, it is really uh, the, the auction model helps because it's more of a gamification element versus, you know, here's the value of that item that, you know, like I, in terms of the emotion that I have of it, because we largely not, we're not a C2C platform at all. We're a B2C platform, but they are discovery shopping items. So it would be, for instance, if you're walking on Embarcadero Road, which is here in San Francisco, and it's, you've had a nice lunch and now you're just kind of browsing on the streets, looking at the vendors and you see a bracelet, which is um, made of shells and you want to pay uh, the pricing at $20. Maybe it's a little too expensive, but you're really feeling happy and you're ready to pay for that. Or you find something for $5, you know, it's basically some just overall discovery and emotional connection with that item. And those kind of in products and that kind of platform works very well with an auction format. Very cool. So give me a little more details on how you gamify the process. I saw that it's a 90 second auction, which 
I had never heard of and I thought was very fun and definitely would uh, convince buyers to buy quickly. Yeah. But in what ways did you gamify the platform and uh, has it been successful with the short auctions? No, totally. So I think even the auction, we call that as a gamification technique per se. You know, you, you get into, uh, so think about what, what a game does for us. It makes us competitive. We compete. So just competing on an item is gamification in itself. And because you shorten it, it's basically uh, shorten the time frame. The adrenaline that you boost that you get of competing is much more extreme. Um, yeah. So I, I think on the core that platform uses that gamification technology, and then now we've added on things like badges. We've added on things like you know you can collect if you shopped in certain categories, you collect a badge. Um, you you could collect it and then cash it in as chips to get some credits. So there's a bunch of uh, other techniques we've added on and we're continuing to do that, right? I think that is what, uh, that's what makes our platform unique and different. Um, we're literally trying to uh, take an offline shopping, browsing, uh, uh, hunting experience and putting it online and, uh, you know, having fun in it. So whether you call it games or just an absolute fun uh, experience, that's what we do. Yeah, I could uh, definitely see that being addicting, <laughs> going through many 90-second auctions. That sounds fun. I'm going to have to try that out. Is there certain incentives that you've seen be more successful, whether, like you said, it's badges or certain things showing up on the user's profiles? Like, what things have you seen work well and which ones were kind of duds? You know, this badges have been really useful for us last year that when we launched it. You know, we also launched a few other things, like we tried to kind of add a community angle to it, but those experiments didn't do very well, where, you know, you could poke or you could give some, you know, even the gamification element, like having a name there, that was very helpful Mm -hmm. to us. So I think what has been working well is having like pictures. At one point, we even had like pictures of individuals that they would upload, adding profiles of themselves. These, These are all things that were very successful, apart from the badges that I said. And we continue to iterate, you know, we experiment a bunch um, every quarter, every month, every week, and we try to see what, what works. But the big wins for us yeah, last, last year was uh, badges, uh, the names, um, and, and the profiles, per se. We didn't, we didn't think that people would want to add profiles and talk about themselves, but you'd be surprised they do. You know, this is where I think the convergence of a little bit of the community and gamification and shopping is all occurring and everyone's discovering what their how their own comfort level in terms of that convergence yeah very cool is there any metrics that you look at when it comes to adding these different features or you said you're running tons of experiments all the time what are your go-to metrics to be able to tell you if something's successful or not that's right. So the, the, uh, we look at the typical funnel metrics. We try to look at, you know, how many, the engagement metrics, which are our people bidding. Uh, and more bids that we, we have, then obviously it means that people are engaged and it also drives up the ASP of the item, which uh, uh, is very helpful from the sell side. So that's definitely what we look at. And eventually conversion. So if you're bidding, that is conversion. So I could also see it being interesting with, you're essentially getting, like you said, multiple conversions just by someone bidding on it to where I'm guessing you could retarget those people and you have consumers earlier than a lot of other brands might experience. Is that what you've seen? And how do you go about re-engaging those people? 
It's a great question. So, I mean, you, what you're seeing is you're basically, even people are, are engaging on an item, only one person is winning it. Let's say it's, there were 10 bidders, there's nine of them who were interested in, in that item. Maybe they were not interested in that item beyond a certain price point, but they were. So uh, what we do is we, if you bid on an item, we do consider that as a saved or a liked item. So we save it as a liked item in the backend. And so we use uh, various notification methodologies for when that item comes back. So let's say I bid on, the, I'm looking at the platform right now on a CBD cream, pre-in relief item. <laughs> Very popular Very these days. Popular. <laughs> no, I didn't win it because it's gone up like it's somebody is out to get me and I don't want to pay $15 for this. So I kind of stop at 14 So now the system will automatically capture that. If you look at the platform, there's a little heart-shaped on lot, which basically is our version of we like it. And so uh, the, mo the next time the CBD cream is coming up for auction, I will receive a notification that says it's coming up for auction. Come, come back to the platform. So we drive up a bunch of engagement with those kind of uh, notifications. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. What kind of investments have you done into personalization? Right, that's a very interesting question, actually. Uh, Stephanie, for us, you know, personalization goes, the, the traditional definition of personalization is to be able to give you uh, 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 that item at the price that you want, that doesn't really work well in our auction platform. It actually, we, so what, for us, there's a broader meaning of personalization. For us, it's about personalizing to a group of people with similar tastes and similar needs and, and, and shopping behaviors versus tailoring it to an individual. So we do, we do, we do, uh, I would rather, I, I would suggest that we use terms like targeting. So there are males, if there are electronic items, shaving items, we know that generally appeal to men. So our feed optimizes knowing that this is a male, their feed will optimize depending on, um, on the fact that are they male or female. Very cool. So the other thing that I was thinking about is seems like it could be a little bit difficult to bring a seller to a platform and say, Hey, you have, you know, there's 90 seconds for your product to get sold. And I was curious how you convince sellers to come to the platform. And one interesting thing I saw was your guys blog, which seems to focus a lot on education that isn't really about top hatter per se, but it's things like how to optimize your e-commerce warehouse strategy or how to sell more products. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it's just an educational tool that could possibly convert sellers to come on the platform. What does that process look like to get them you know, to list their first product? That's, that's great. You have multiple questions in there and all very interesting. Uh, so let, let I me... seem to do that. <laughs> they are interesting. Your brain works very fast. That uh, I can tell. <laughs> so uh, I think the, the first question is, you know, how, how can they? Like what happens in 90 seconds? Can they, I think you're trying to say, can they realize the price in 90 seconds? Well, that is the interesting part is you would find that there are certain items on our platform that can go up to $100 in 90 seconds or a little bit more than 90 seconds. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But like some popular items, we keep them on the block longer because we know there's a lot of excitement. So if I'm listing, for example, an iPhone, which is a refurb iPhone, but still not very old, you will see that that, that will generate a ton of interest. 
What does that mean? So what does that show to the seller is that if you have an item that a lot of people will like and converge, you will be able to realize a price and probably more than what you wanted uh, in a short period of time. So, it, so sellers who understand um, the audience and understand what would appeal to the audience do really well on the platform. So that's, number, that's the number one question on price realization. The second point I think you're making about you know, educating it's, uh, and, and t t teaching them a lot on what could sell and how to optimize the platform, what your warehousing strategy should be. Well, because we are a discovery-based platform, it's like people get bored quickly, right? Because you've suddenly, everybody likes this CBD cream. You've got a ton of inventory there and you've got a ton of buyers. But after that point, it's like that song that you, uh, has been at the top of your charts yep. and you've heard it so much, you're bored of it now. So then that, that is slow, very quickly goes out of fashion and that makes it harder for a seller to traditionally to do warehousing strategies and what have you. And then they're like, you know, I had a great product to selling really well. I was making a lot of money and now I'm not. Now what do we do? So sellers have to be really smart about how they test. So they kind of uh, have a marquee product that they know that they make most money in velocity. They keep selling that. They knowing that this is going to not be the case in a few weeks or a few months, mm -hmm. but then continue to test on the other side in parallel in anticipation of this, uh, of creating leads and nurturing more products that can fill in the gap when, when this one runs out, runs its time. Got it. Yeah. That seems like it's a lot of moving pieces to yeah make sure that you're putting the right product out with the right amount of inventory level. Are these sellers also selling on their own websites traditionally, or are they pretty focused on, you know, you guys and maybe Amazon? Yeah, that's that. Uh, so, are we the primary platform, or do they sell on other platforms and their own? Yeah, or their own. Or their yeah. own. Yeah. So, uh, you know, some of them we do we do find a mix of all of that. So, if you think about it, the pyramid structure almost as the very top are the big players uh, who sell on every platform. They themselves have their own big e-commerce companies, sorry, websites, and they're selling on those platforms themselves. They don't do a lot of GTV. Those are the ones that have found a marquee product and probably have a ton of inventory on the platform. Uh, and they keep, they kind of uh, probably also want to do testing and channel optimization in their own companies. So we probably are one of them. So they don't do a lot of GTV, but they are good players. They provide great experience and they're also happy to use our platform also probably because it gives us, gives them a ton of velocity as compared mm -hmm. to the other platforms. So those are the very top. And then you have the ones in the center who are actually small, medium businesses. They are mostly who, for whom Top Hatter is the primary channel. So what they'll do is they will uh, do a ton of testing on the platform, figure out what's working, find, like I said, find successes. They'll build their entire business around it. And then if it doesn't sell from, you know, after a point in time and they're stuck with inventory, then they liquidate it on other platforms. It's the other way around. So different use case in this case. And, and then the bottom of the ones are just people who come in and go. It could be even a buyer like you, you and me who, who think, oh yeah, I have a purse in my closet. Let me try and sell it. And then, so you'll have a bunch of people who come in. Gotcha. So as a COO, you probably have a very good bird's eye view, like you said, into the entire company. What advice would you give to someone if they were, talking about starting a marketplace, which is probably one of the hardest, I would think, uh, e-commerce businesses to start, what kind of things would you advise them to do or not do? 
Oh, that's a great, great question. So hard, so hard. You're exactly yeah. right. It's very hard. I think the first thing is you have to kind of figure out your customer acquisition and your unit economics. You may not make, you know, you, you have to get a sense of, am I able to bring in a customer with the certain level of advertising cost? And are they, do I have a platform that they are engaged enough that it will basically the unit economics will work out. I think that's like the primary question. And sometimes uh, the indications are that they will and over time they don't, right? And that's where it all changes. So after having built the initial base for that, then the idea is to be able to understand the, the, the startup or whoever's starting the company has to constantly look at how do I drive that engagement? How do I drive that LTV? What are the changes they could make? And, and really experiment a lot. Um, experiment a lot, be open to learning from the results of those experiments and being brave enough to not feeling so personal about those experiments and the business model that you have to uh, uh, hold on to it, right? So you should know when, when, when a particular thing is not going to work or has hit a ceiling and then you continue to innovate and continue to iterate and experiment. Yep, that makes sense. Are there any metrics, maybe financial ones or not financial that you look at to understand like if you guys are growing the way that you want and like, how do you think about success when it comes to the growth of the business and the platform? Oh, absolutely. So those are the three big, the three big metrics for any company, no matter what is always the three, right? The big ones, your GTV in our case, right? How are, are you growing your top line? Then you want to look at, you know, are you, uh, you know, what's your margin or in revenue in other cases, what's your margin? Is it healthy enough? Um, and how much liquidity do you have? Like basically that's the healthy part. How much of operating income do you have? Now you may not have, you may have negative operating income because you're a startup, but the idea is you want to know whether your unit economics are going to be scalable. There has to be a story, you know, so let's say your, your unit economics are not working out right now. That is because, because of X, Y, Z reasons, like you are investing in logistics or you're investing in international growth, you're investing in something. But there has to be an IP that you've built up that will allow you to be able to monetize this in the long term where unit economics will work out. There has to be that formula and there has to be that clarity. And there has to be proof points when you're building the business that that story or that narrative that you built is going to come true. Yeah. Is, it, is that something that you all have been able to keep track of from the start? Because I could see a lot of startups maybe getting pretty far in and being like, uh-oh, probably should have started measuring this. But you don't really think about that when you're starting a company. You're just trying to you know, be scrappy and get it out. Right. Um, is that something that you've paid attention to since the beginning or at least since you've been at the company? No, actually, a lot, lot of it right from the beginning. So even like I've been here only for three years, but the founders, founding team, they were very, very uh, diligent about unit economics. So I, I think that the fact that we have been staying standing for eight years now and as big as the, we are is a testament to the fact that the founding team was so focused on unit economics. Um, so we know now that we know our formula. We know really well what uh, for our formula, how sensitive that is and what are the factors that causes it to be sensitive. So we've got, you know, um, we've got guardrails around that. We might make investments and might make bold moves, but we also know what we, uh, based on the guardrail that we have established is when that is shaky and when we need to pull back. Cool. Are you 
A-B testing or running multiple tests on kind of what uh, user interface works best or, you know, what users enjoy the most. I'm guessing you could have a bunch of different interfaces and see, you know, how they interact, more eagerly interact with the platform. Oh, totally. So A-B testing is just what we do, right? That's that's all we do. We almost, even in operations, we kind of try to do A-B testing. But yeah. uh, even we tell the sellers, right? You do A-B testing, have a listing with these words, have, have a picture with these words. Uh, oh, that's great. Uh, right? So it, that, that is such a core part of our DNA is, uh, is, is A-B testing. Being able to, you know, un- have population groups, holdout groups, we even have actually that is so much in our DNA that even in terms of our OKRs, we actually call it games. Our OKRs are called games now. And we want to know whether what we're doing, even in an operational sense, makes a difference for the company. So we have a holdout group that does not receive any of the things that the operational team is doing. And then we try to compare the effectiveness of the population we hold out. So we've really taken this whole uh, A-B testing to a wholly new level. How do you get your employees to engage in that way and think in that way of like everything's going to be tested and measured? How did you get them to put that hat on? No, it's very interesting. It was a little bit of a struggle initially for us because in a marketplace environment, there is, it's like an economy, right? There are so many things that are happening. It's really hard to measure the impact of one activity. So you you bring in a big seller and you say, wow, this seller's GTP has grown by X percent. Well, that's probably because he has replaced the GTP of another person, right? So how do we know that this is incremental to the platform? That's the kind, it's a very hard question to ask. And even at eBay, we used to struggle with it. Uh, But of course, eBay was at scale. So, you know, there are established ways of measuring things. Um, So in our context, what uh, to answer your question more specifically in terms of employee engagement, what we showed was we actually did one experiment with the marketing team where it was about giving credits uh, to our buyers and seeing how they engage. So we uh, lifecycle marketing activity that was very easy to do. You just have a group that you don't send credits and see how they perform and give another group credits. And it was very clear the impact of the team and how they were managing the spends in driving engagement. Very clear. So we use that as an example of how we could leverage that. But the key was, is how you set up the measurements, how, what kind of tactics you're measuring. You can't measure every single thing. And you also want to measure things that are uh, important. And also you want to make sure that you have a business strategy and the measurement follows that versus the other way around, that you define a measurement system and then say, okay, now we can only, let's only do things that we can measure. So there is, a, there is a fine balance there. So uh, the, uh, just to kind of summarize then what, how we did this was we said, okay, what's the business strategy? What are the things we should do? Now, having said that, which activities are most amenable to A-B testing and to measurements? And uh, let's, let's go ahead and play games around that. And then so on a daily basis, you will have reporting SQL reports that are set up that spits out based on those games how, how you've done that actually really helped the teams understand and refine the tactics and levers. And once you found a tactic that worked or a lever that worked, then the teams could go and scale it into a big process, which with the dashboard and what have you. But uh, if you didn't know what those tactics are, you're not sure and you want to test it, this was a very good way for, for even the teams to understand and measure and refine. Yeah, that seems like a really fun way to engage employees and get them excited about data. Because I could see 
you know, a lot of people being like, oh, I don't feel like looking at these metrics and I don't really know what they mean. And I don't know how to take an action from it. But putting it into like a game format, just like your platform, seems like the per- perfect culture fit as well. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, you know, you have to understand also that who, uh, as an organization, you know, who's comfortable with data and who's not and find ways to support it. So all of these games are set up by our team in growth, the, uh, the analytics team, uh, who basically work very closely with all of the other teams, whether they are product and engineers or operations. They understand what the teams are trying to do, and then they suggest the measurement system. So it's a collaborative effort. Uh, so that gives the people who are not very comfortable with data to uh, know that they are supported. And it's simple interpretation of the data. They don't have to define a whole lot of other things, which could be uh, you know, perceived as pressure driving. Yeah, that, that's so important, having that team mentality, because yeah. I think in the past, engineers were kind of left out of coming up with you know, the metrics or KPIs or helping influence product decisions. And I'm seeing this movement now where everyone's starting to work together and develop those KPIs and metrics to think about. And they're not kind of leaving the engineers out and just saying, hey, we'll come up with everything and we'll let you know how to make it for us or we'll give you all the specs. It seems like there's a a unifying process happening right now when it comes to the different teams. Absolutely. And I'm a big believer that we should have the collective intelligence of everybody you know, just because you're writing code or you're making a sales call doesn't mean that you may not be able to contribute to the bigger picture. In fact, because you're in the trenches, you probably have a different perspective on that problem. And it's important to be able to, you know, harness all of that energy and all of that input to then step back and see, you know, uh, what it's offering us. Yeah, completely agree. Are there any marketing channels that you all are experimenting with? Because the world's moving so quick and there's all these new platforms popping up. Is there anything that you're trying out right right now or somewhere that you're finding success that maybe others aren't looking? You know, I think it's just the usual, you know, uh, TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat, what we call is like uh, other channels besides the big Mm -hmm. two, Facebook and Google. And what has been interesting for us, we're largely an old side for older people and women majority. But TikTok is for young people. They're literally Gen Z or so. And we're seeing some success there. I don't know how much yeah. that can scale. We'll have to see it. But that's, that's why it's so important to continue to be, to experiment, you'd have some surprises. So TikTok is definitely a surprise for us. Yeah, we've actually had quite a few guests on the show mention TikTok. So how are you guys, what kind of ads are you putting on there? If someone you know, a brand right now is thinking about utilizing TikTok. What are some uh, ways that you're utilizing that platform right now? Like, how are you engaging the younger generation on there? Which I heard is actually aging a bit. So, okay, <laughs> um, but yeah, how are you using it? <laughs> uh, well, it's it's a, it's a short video format. So we, you know, up, up with the product. I mean, we all know that video is very engaging and lot lot more content on video. It's just the, our ability to scale, I think, is, is the key here, is we have so many products, we have so many items to be able to continuously find uh, the right level of um, engagement in terms of, in, if it's a video, it has to have the product, it has to be able to do all of that messaging, uh, because we are not leaving it to the consumer to be able to browse and find their information on their own. So that, that's, the, that's the only challenge in terms of scaling, but yeah, generally, it's, it's just very short. We, we work with partners who create all of those creators for us. I uh, got it. Yeah, I'm wondering if there, you have to definitely probably have different messaging on that platform yeah, right. where I wonder <laughs> if it can't be, like you can't have the brand up in front maybe, 
It has to be more like, here's the fun behind it. Yeah, and you go find yeah, out yes. what's behind this. I'm thinking to market to that, uh, those different users and maybe on like an Instagram or Facebook where it can be more obvious. Is that how you guys have kind of That's right. um, approached that? That's right. And also, you know, what is it that people are engaging with? So for example, if on Facebook, people like uh, if value, those are the things we use a lot because we feel like those are the campaigns that do well for us, right? Where we see deals and fun and, you know, value. Whereas I think more from a TikTok kind of a customer, it's more the experience, the gamification element, um, and probably a lot more um, products that are skewing different uh, to that audience. So that's the kind of experimentation we keep doing and testing and coming up with you know, the, the best optimization for that channel. Yeah, that's very cool. We'll definitely have to check that out. I was reading a very pretty funny article about how some of the younger generation is using TikTok and they're... I don't know if you've heard about this. They're putting faces on different storefronts. So whether it's Nordstrom or Target, they're putting like eyeballs and a mouth on it. And then they're creating personas for these brands to then be like dating each other and like having drama. They're like Target and Home Depot are having like, you know, a tiff today or whatever. They're breaking up. I was reading this whole article about how TikTok's being used for that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, is this really a platform? Everyone on the show keeps talking about like, TikTok's the way to go. And I read this silly article about the drama between brands that these kids are making up. And I mean, it was pretty funny. I wanted to go check it out, but <laughs> it made me question it a little bit. <laughs> it is a, definitely engaging. Um, I have a 12, 13 year old son. That's all he does all day long. It's so hard. We have to literally snatch his phone and hide it. TikTok is very, yeah. very addictive. Oh man. Yeah, I believe it. But I'm sure there's a lot you could learn from him too of, hey, what do you think would be a fun ad? What would you like to see on here? <laughs> You're right. I do I do film them sometimes when he and his friends are bidding on Top Hatter. It's interesting to see how they <laughs> engage, what they do. Fascinating kids these days. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that seems like a good way to kind of learn and test product and test marketing. If you have a 12-year-old, now you know, everyone, <laughs> that's what you can use for your product testing. So you've been in the e-commerce industry for a while. What's one thing that you wish online sellers would start or stop doing? Would start or stop doing? It's fairly mature now. So let me think about that. And it could be D2C sellers who, you know, they're all starting up on their own where you're like, eh, you probably should do this or shouldn't do that. Or I've seen success around this, or this is really annoying when people do this. No, I think as a consumer, I think I think the more connection that I have to the to the seller and being able to. Um, so I'll give you my first experience to explain. Like when I was at e when I was a consumer at eBay long before I joined eBay, I had a situation where uh, it, it I hadn't got the item that I wanted, and so the seller simply just shipped me uh, another item as a replacement, asked me to refund, uh, you know, send everything back. Uh, and just kind of beg that I don't really do a bad job, don't give him a bad review. But uh, so, I mean, keeping that aside, but the whole idea of the way that seller actually engaged with me and took care of me made me feel very trusted uh, Mm -hmm. as a consumer. So I think that that is the big challenge for uh, e-commerce, you know, as we all players, you know, whether you're a retailer e-commerce arm of a, a retailer or you are a your marketplace like us, I think the challenge is the element of trust. Because at the end of it, I can't touch the item. I don't know who you are. I haven't seen you. I haven't gone to your store. That's, I think, the, uh, uh, the critical aspect. Because I, d- I don't know, Stephanie, if you realize this, that even though we think e-commerce is a very mature market, if from an online perspective, 
the penetration rate for certain categories is still fairly small. You know, books and CDs are probably 55% of uh, online sales, you know, e-penetration. But apparel and beauty, for instance, apparel is less than 30%. I don't know what happens after COVID-19, so I don't know the numbers, but the expectation for 2020 for apparel was 29% and beauty 11 this is another angle to what I said, but it's also the emotional element of uh, when I'm wearing this outfit, how do I look? Am I getting, how um, does it fit me? Am I getting the community feedback of, uh, yeah, it's great. Like if I go shopping with my friends, they'll be, yeah, that looks yeah. very cute. How do I replicate that part? Or if it's beauty, how does it look, you know, with my skin color? Those are some challenges that I think uh, we still need to, we still need to address. Yeah, I completely agree, especially the trust piece. I mean, I on Instagram, every single day, there's probably five new hmm. apparel companies advertising to me. And yeah. you go to their website and you're like, and eh, did you just start yesterday? <laughs> and it seems like there needs to be some kind of mechanism to show like, and I know there are people that are trying like to show like this is a trustworthy website and they've been around right. for, you know, five years. But it definitely seems hard from a consumer perspective if things are, you know, moving more online and people do start getting more comfortable shopping online. If you get burned once, it's going to be pretty hard to want to, you know, try out a new company. I think that'll be something that'll be difficult, but necessary to figure out. Yeah. And, you know, there's to add to that, Stephanie is also like, you know, what is the, what is the agency? Like if you're buying something, like you said, you know, I click a lot of the ads on Facebook and I have a similar reaction, you know, and, and, and being also on the other side of a partner of Facebook, it's very interesting to me to see both sides of the uh, aisle is how does Facebook become an arbitrator here, Mm -hmm. right? How do they uh, make sure that the buyer is taken care of and folks like us top header as a company who are sellers on the, or, you know, advertise on the platform, how, how how to hold us accountable without and managing our internal metrics of how we considered uh, customer satisfaction and marrying that with their, with Facebook's definition. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a very interesting challenge because you're talking about like distribution across so many uh, like it, it, there was a time when you knew eBay right it's organic search so you didn't have to you didn't have to go through an intermediary like Facebook now we've added that on Facebook has become the, the one of the biggest ad players so when you add that on what is their responsibility in all of this mm-hmm. have you seen these platforms since you've been on them kind of shifting their viewpoint on responsibility and kind of upping their standards when it comes to new brands joining? Has it seems like it's got like starting to get better when it comes to that? No, it's a very good question. Actually, they have, but I don't think that they are very mature in terms of how to think about it. So I'll, let, let me explain this a little bit. So let me use eBay's example. So when eBay went through that uh, question of how, how responsible are, are we, how can we make sure that the seller's performance match that of customers? expectation and i think eBay had like 25 years of experience building that out you know seller performance management system mm-hmm. facebook is fairly immature there right i think they're still very early in the process they've just figured that out like people are asking them questions not only on the ad the uh, content news content they're being held accountable but they're also being held accountable for the advertisers on the platform from a commerce perspective so they're not mature they're figuring it out and they have some rudimentary measures. But I think the gap for me as a consumer of Facebook's advertising, not consumer, sorry, 
as somebody who advertises on Facebook, for me, the biggest challenge is they, I, I cannot connect the dots as to what I think my customers need and how Facebook's thinks my customers need. Like I cannot, like I may, I may have great customer satisfaction on my platform, but Facebook may not think that I do and vice versa. So I think they have some maturing, maturing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely seems like it's a tough pull between, you know, these platforms. Do you want more revenue or do you want to, you know, cut down on your revenue to also have better brands come on and not let, you know, just anyone come on the platform and potentially hurt the end user. Exactly. And that's, that's the kind of challenge we had at eBay too, right? And we have at Top Hatter, like all marketplaces have the exact same thing, you know, so because anybody who has, generally speaking, uh, sensationalism, whether it is news content or products also, people who are the bad sellers do things in such a way that they might get more volume and they may be even willing to pay for it because they don't have the overhead costs. So that is the same challenge that we have as marketplaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but, that's that. But, but then what you do is you create a performance management system where you reward good behaviors and you improve the baseline for the entire, for the entire platform. You move the goalpost for the entire platform consistently, continuously. And that, 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 of course, took 25 years for eBay to get there. And still, I think yeah. we need to continue to refine it. So I think it's a question of time before Facebook figures it out. Yeah. Well, hopefully, with everything going on with COVID, it's been speeding everything else up. So hopefully, it'll kind of encourage speed around that area. And it doesn't take 25 years to develop. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so we mentioned COVID. And that brings me to the question of what do you think the future of online commerce looks like, especially after the pandemic's over? It's a great, great question. I, I, I think that uh, the last I saw, there was like a 120% increase in online shopping in Q1, I think, or mm-hmm. year on year in the US, something crazy like that. That, of course, yeah. won't be as crazy. The growth rate will probably come down. But then it, some of the shift will, is significant and will stay there. So um, uh, we, we all know that grocery shopping penetration went up. It's probably going to not be as high, continue. But, but people who have never done grocery shopping online will be like, this is kind of cool. I need to stick with it. So there will be some shift mm-hmm. that stays permanent. I think the more interesting thing for me is what I'm seeing with retailers. The retailers who do not have an online uh, presence at all are kind of coming to terms with the fact that they can't ignore it. And all of the industry is designed around physical location. The processes are designed around physical location. Uh, their marketing is designed around that, you know, uh, pricing strategy, procurement strategy, returns, everything. So that's why they have been very resistant in terms of, uh, generally speaking, uh, there are some who do better than the others. Generally speaking, they're a little more old school when it comes to e-commerce. Like, can you believe that Ross does not have an online uh, Platform. Oh, yeah, I know. Or Marshalls. It's crazy. I love Marshalls. And I'm like, I don't, yeah. I, it's too hot. I want to shop and I can't shop because they don't have a website. I actually just brought this up in a, another interview about TJ Maxx. There was a whole article yeah. that they will not be going online. I mean, they have a very minimal e-commerce experience right now. Yeah. But I think they put their foot in the sand and they're like, no, we we're won't not do doing it. it. So it'll be- <laughs> That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Well, yeah. so maybe they can still, you know, they can get away with it because- 
they are only a discount retailer, right? And they, they, they don't have major investments and maybe they've realized that this is the niche and they don't want to um, divert their resources somewhere else. That's okay. But now, but the other retailers that were on the brink of bankruptcy have been kind of pushed to the to facing it at the moment. I think what 25 retailers probably have already filed for bankruptcy thus far. Yep. And I hear that in the next um, five years, there'll be 100,000 stores that may be closing down. But what that means is there will be a tremendous amount of retail consolidation and people will have to take it seriously. People will have to redo their processes. Some good examples I think I've heard is Zara. Zara is, yep. is very serious about this and they're like, we will close our stores and we will have an opt-in channel strategy. We are going to use COVID-19 as a way to um, accelerate that, that we were going there anyway. Let's do that. I think that's the right way to go. Yeah, that's great. That'll, I wonder what will happen with all the stores. It seems like there could also be an opportunity for different retail models to pop up, like pop-up stores exactly. and guide shops and things like that. Absolutely. And I think that stores are, uh, will never go out of fashion, but how you use stores, it, initially it was stores as a central point of your strategy. Instead, it will be a strategic lever. I mean, there's a reason why Amazon bought Whole Foods. The, there was, the, you know, the, the fact that there are retail locations is a strategic lever for Amazon. Best Buy turned around. But and use yep. they they use the stores as a very strategic lever. Same thing with Walmart, and and so people will always want to socialize. You know, uh, people will want to hang out. People will want that. So the stores could be an experience. It could be a place where you pick up things quickly. It could be a place where you actually there are things that you don't want to try on. Like you can't figure it out. You go there. Maybe it's a place where you drink wine and hang out and um, you know uh, <laughs> do other things. You. Really, my kind of store that kind of yoga <laughs> yeah not like the stores could be an experience it doesn't have to yeah. be a transactional place where you just buy and sell things yeah i completely agree or even you know the stores are known for having the newest items where yeah. you know for the people who care about that they yeah, can go into they the store. store and then for the people yeah. like me who maybe are like eh, if it's been out a few months i don't mind yeah you know can just shop online mm -hmm. so yeah i completely agree about the experiential aspect of it so before we move into the lightning round, is there anything around the e-commerce industry that you wanted to highlight or talk about that I just missed? No, I think I did want to talk about the retail, which we covered. So thank you for asking me that question. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that was great. All right, cool. Then we can move on to the lightning round brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question tree and in a minute or less, you can give me a wonderful answer. No, Are you ready? No pressure. No, I'm not ready, yep. but go for it. <laughs> no pressure. Just take a deep breath. It'll be fun. All right. So what app are you enjoying most on your phone? Uh, shall I admit it is TikTok? <laughs> yes, you can admit that. I actually have just started getting into TikTok. So there's no judgment coming from my end. <laughs> like, are you doing dancing videos or what are you doing? No, I just watch. I don't, I just watch. It's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, just watching from the sidelines. Yeah, that's me too. I'm like, I'm not creative enough to make something per se, but I'll watch everyone else. Uh, what is the newest e-commerce tool that you're trying out right now? Newest e-commerce tool, say more. So any kind of tool that you're working on for the platform right yeah. now? So, at Top Hatter. Got it. So Re React Native, I'll, I'll pick that. Okay. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? <laughs> um, I think it would be about managing stress 
and how to live a balanced life, uh, a happy life. And mm -hmm. I would love to get Dalai Lama. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> we'll have to email him. I'm sure he'll say yes. <laughs> All right. What's up next on your reading list? On my reading list, I have a history book that I just ordered. And I have a ben, ben Franklin's uh, biography that somebody had written that I, is on my reading list now. I've done a lot of business reading, so I need a break now. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's always good to get a break and read something fun. All right. And the last one, what one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? I think um, the retail consolidation to me is the most interesting phenomenon that I'm seeing. So th th that forces a lot more innovation in the industry. And I, I really uh, think that the omni-channel strategies uh, are going to be the new thing, uh, taken at a different, different level. It already is a thing, but then taking it to a different level, that's what um, I foresee and I'm very excited to see in the next few years. Yeah, completely agree. Well, Shri, it's been such a blast having you on the show. Where can people find out more about Top Hatter and yourself? Well, uh, you can find out about me going to LinkedIn um, and uh, go ahead and download Top Hatter on your app. Or if you are more comfortable on desktop, go to tophatter.com. Um, you'll find us all there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on Up Next in Commerce. Uh, we'll have to have you back. This was a blast. Awesome. Thank you, Stephanie. Had a great time myself. Have a great day. Stay safe out there. Thanks. You too. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.